0: Writing about crime contains themes and subjects that some may find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Together with Prince Edward Island and Nova Scotia, New Brunswick is one of Canada's three maritime provinces. The principal cities are Fredericton, the capital, Greater Moncton, currently the largest metropolitan area and the most populous city, and the Port of St. John. These cities have modern service based economies dominated by healthcare, education, retail, finance, and insurance sectors. In addition, heavy industry and port facilities are found in St. John. Fredericton is dominated by government services, universities, and the military. And Moncton has developed a commercial, retail, transportation, and distribution center with important rail and air terminal facilities. Maritimers are notoriously friendly people. The natives are proud of their heritage and have a pace all their own, yet very hardy, hard-working people. There's a community feel even in the larger cities, and crime is not as prevalent as bigger cities in Canada. However, in July 2011, Dennis Oland, a 47-year-old man, was charged with bludgeoning his millionaire father Richard to death. The trial was one of the longest and most expensive in the history of St. John, New Brunswick. And we are going to examine it today so please don't leave me in 1941 richard dick henry oland was the second born son to philip warburton oland and mary howard oland after the birth of his brother derek derek and richard were born and bred in rothesay a suburb community of saint john's wealthy elite Families living within Rothesay, such as the Owens, the Irvings, the McCains, and the Crosbys, are considered old money, claiming some of Canada's highest incomes per capita. Richard attended Rothesay Collegiate School, Regiopolis College, and the University of New Brunswick. Eventually, Richard went on to specialize his knowledge in biochemistry with the Wallerstein Laboratories to obtain a certificate of brewing technology. In anticipation of his career within the Oland family's sixth-generation dynasty brewing Moosehead beer, Richard began courting Constance Connie Catherine Connell when she was sixteen years of age, and in nineteen sixty-five, Richard and Connie wed. The couple gave birth to three children, including Elizabeth Lisa Oland, Jacqueline Lee Oland, and Dennis James Oland. By nineteen eighty. Richard Olin was a vice president of Moosehead Brewery and vied with his brother Derek, then the executive vice president for the presidency, in a bitter public feud and legal battles. Their father, P.W. Olin, who was then president, decided to select Derek to succeed him, resulting in Richard ultimately leaving the brewery in 1981. While Patrick and his brother Andrew ran Moosehead, Richard made his 37 million by establishing investment and in transport companies always with merciless determination however most of his financial bounty was in selling of his portion of moosehead to his brother in fact his inheritance from his father starting from scratch richard found a niche in the saint john business community with his development of three major enterprises kinghurst estates limited brookville transport limited and Far End Corporation. Richard became an accomplished businessman. Amassing many awards and a fortune of nearly $37 million, Olin was in charge of organizing the 1985 Canada Summer Games. While Olin owned the investment firm Far End Corporation and made its premises his primary office, which was located at 52 Canterbury Street of the historic uptown district of St. John, The second-floor office space was rented from building owner John Ainsworth. Ainsworth operated his own business, Printing Plus, from the first floor of the building, and rented out the third floor. Despite Richard's reputation, the Olens blended in as ordinary New Brunswickers. Dennis's kids went to public schools in Rothesay and joined sports clubs, and his father and uncles handed out beer around their yacht clubs, even men in rowboats. They seem to be just good regular people in the community, said Mayor Bishop. I think you find that with Maritime Families, the Irvings, the McCains, the Olens, they don't try to dominate or take over. They play their role and they fit in. It seems embedded in us. Richard went to Christmas parties at the local inn, which was no big show, said Bishop. He was just an ordinary citizen. The body of Richard Olin was found face down in a pool of blood in his St. John office on July 7, 2011. Sergeant Mark Smith testified that Richard's office was one of the bloodiest crime scenes of his career, with the most blows to a victim. The forensic pathologist Dr. Ether Nasimuddin counted 45 wounds to Richard's hands, neck, and head during the autopsy. Six of the 45 wounds were found on Richard's hands, likely due to Richard trying to protect himself from his attacker. These defensive wounds led to over 30 hair and fiber exhibits to be seized at autopsy for forensic examination, including three hairs found inside Richard's hands and tissue samples from under Richard's fingernails. The hairs couldn't be tested for DNA as they were lacking a root and only Richard's DNA was found underneath his fingernails. The attack continued after Richard was defenseless on the floor. Richard's skull was completely broken. The bones of his eye sockets were like a crack eggshell, possibly from him falling face first onto the floor. There were 14 fractures found in Richard's skull, and the skull pounded in so badly that it had a concave area spanning 10 centimeters in length. Portions of brain matter were found on Richard's back. The attack had left Richard's blood on every single wall of his office. The splatter was seen in Richard's desk, on his computer, chair, filing cabinets, and on an empty pizza box in the garbage can. Blood had soaked through three layers of flooring, permeating the ceiling of Printing Plus the office below. Police analysts claim the person who created these injuries would have had significant blood stains and splatter on their person, and would be expected to transfer blood stains to the surfaces of other objects that the person came in contact with. Forensic analysts noticed the blood pooling on the floor around Richard may not have occurred until after the attacker had left the office, explaining why the scene contained few transfer stains and only one footprint that was never connected to a suspect. The physician who reviewed the autopsy report believed Richard was alive for the duration of the attack. He believed Richard was only surviving the attack for 5 to 10 minutes, but was alive for all of his injuries. Some injuries were believed to have been caused by a sharp-edged weapon, while other injuries were caused by blunt force, indicating that Richard was killed by a weapon with two different edges, or two weapons were used. Bowes raised the possibility that a combat knife could have been a weapon. Sergeant Mike King claimed he suspected a roofer's hatchet to be the weapon, while Constable Stephen Davidson believed a weapon could have been a drywall hammer. No weapons were found at the crime scene, and no weapons were entered as evidence at trial. Shortly after being notified of the death, members of the Olin family, including Richard's wife Connie Olin, daughters Lisa Boston and Jacqueline Walsh, as well as son Dennis Olin, arrived at the police station to give interviews and formal statements. Connie said that on July 6, 2011, she and Richard were both at home until Richard received a call from Maureen Adamson at 9.50 a.m., reminding him of an appointment in his office with two insurance brokers at 10 a.m. Richard then left home for the office, and that was the last time Connie spoke with him. Connie said it was not uncommon for Richard not to return to their residence at night. Lisa Buston, Dennis's sister, was interviewed alone. Bustin said that her father could have anyone as an enemy, as he was a hard-nosed businessman, pure business, and if you worked hard, you would get his respect. Dennis Olin's interview lasted over five hours and was separate from those of the other family members. Video footage showed Dennis providing Constable Stephen Davidson with a written and verbal account of his activities for the day prior July 6, 2011. He believed his father had high expectations of him, but that Dennis was not meeting those expectations.
0: Was he the easiest guy in the world to get along with? No.
1: You know, he was never violent, he was
0: never uh, totally, completely unreasonable that you couldn't sort of go, okay, well, you know, that. It didn't entirely make sense, but I mean, right. you know, you, well, knowing as long as we all have, you know, you know, a person's character, you sure. know, you want know, to keep your distance yes. and, you know, that kind of thing. And yeah, and look, with him, it was a lot easier to keep your distance. Mm-hmm. because uh, It just kept the peace. Right. And, uh, and, uh, so. How, how was your, how was your relationship with him? Uh, you know, um, from, I guess, uh, when you were younger to now and, and, uh, yeah, I would say that my relationship with my dad was probably perfect until, you know, I was a teenager, mm-hmm. and then, you know, my teenage years with him were very difficult. Right. Um, I was the only son, so I think mm-hmm. I took most of the pressure. Yes. Uh He, you know, was impatient and and did have some, you know, uh, sort of family and social issues. I mean, my my father and I weren't weren't close son, father and son. You know, look, you just grew up in a family of really high expectations. Yes. And uh, I think when you're an adult, you understand, and when you're a parent, you understand that, you know, those expectations, uh, why they're there and, and that kind of thing. Right. Um, you know, we would do some stuff together. You know, we would obviously always have family uh, dinner things, would it be Thanksgiving or Christmas. And yes. Some of those were not always pleasant. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I would... Uh, Again, you know, this is one of those things like you see in the movies. Everything is regimented. Yes. Okay. Everything has to be perfect. Everything gets put down, okay. and you're a waiter the whole time, mm-hmm. and you're on your toes. And if something messes up, then you know no he point. just and it, so it's in those intense situations, which were where everything has to be perfect, when you mm-hmm. can sort of, or, you know would uh, you know it wouldn't go over well. But uh, you know he yeah he and I didn't have that close father son relationship. I think. Um, We would do well just by... He had this thing that you can't be friends with your son. Right. You know, and I get that. He Mm -hmm. wasn't friends with his father. I don't think I wanted to be friends with him. Mm -hmm.
1: The father's psychology is one of mixed emotions. On one hand, he has an interest in having his sons who will become strong, successful men. On the other hand, he's afraid of eventually losing his position of dominance, becoming weak and die. For some men, the second motive dominates until the end. Richard Olin only had one son, so those fears would be projected onto Dennis. His daughters may have witnessed his brazen behaviors, but they most likely weren't in the line of fire, so to speak. Also, as a father, he could certainly have been affected by being the son of Philip Olin. His older brother Derek was the chosen one, chosen to take over and run the moosehead business, That was the families dating back to 1867. Richard left the brewery and made a successful career in investments in transportation. Historically, men are more likely to kill their parents than women. In a study of 5,488 cases of parasite in the United States, 86% of the perpetrators were male. The theory for Dennis committing a so-called rage killing isn't entirely out of place. Psychoanalysists identify narcissistic rage as a compound of shame and rage. Unacknowledged shame and anger causes a sort of feeling trap. The importance is focused on the unacknowledged humiliation. As an example, innuendo and underhanded disrespect more than overt insults opens a cycle that is more likely to end in violence. There are two major ways to react to humiliation, shame or anger. Sometimes humiliated persons will alternate between a shame-rage spiral. Violence transcends humiliation by casting the person who degraded the offender into being of lower status. Rage is about asserting respect. Unless the offender is a self-interested evildoer, the attacker is more likely immersed in a frenzy of upholding what is believed to be decent and respectable. In other words... If a person is humiliated by being disrespected, as opposed to just being told off, they're likely to feel shame and then over time rage, sometimes back and forth. If it goes unaddressed long enough, that rage cycle may push the person into a frenzy, and they'll potentially commit a violent crime against that person to defend what they feel is right and just. To experience a moment of righteousness is the stepping stone from humiliation to violence. Dennis still recalls times where his father had him walking on eggshells, and while he describes an incident with the Christmas cake to investigators, it can be seen that the environment for growing the shame-rage spiral was definitely there.
0: I mean, I certainly remember a Christmas dinner not last year, it might have been two years ago, where blew a gasket of something simple you know when you uh you have a, a christmas cake and you pour rum over hot rum yes. over it and you'll let it flame mm-hmm. okay well it was my job to do that and it flamed for like 30 seconds and flamed out mm-hmm. so by the time i got it from the kitchen into the dining room it flamed out well it was a big fight over that okay and yeah it was you know it was not physical but i mean it was it was ugly i i I might have left I, I don't know okay I mean, it was, everybody was very upset mm-hmm.
1: Police allowed Dennis to leave just after 11 p.m. without making an effort to seize the clothes Dennis said he had worn the day before. Dennis seems oversharing, not emotional about the death that was only the night previously. He describes his father as he barks and barks and barks, so they agreed not to do business together. He actually seems insightful and calm. He seems also oddly believable. Surprisingly, he says his mum Connie felt that Richard had Asperger's because he was intensely wise, but not bestowed the social skills that you would expect. Only one day after his father is murdered, Dennis is already saying things like he was, he was, he was, always past tense. He points out it wasn't all bad between him and his father. He mentions... His father helped him out with his divorce and gave him quite a loan and he says when the going gets tough he was there for me. It was also known that Richard was having an affair. Dennis and his wife Lisa knew about the affair. Jacqueline, his sister, took over the farm and had discussions with Dennis more often. She was diagnosed with lupus and it thought that Richard might help out with money a bit more because she was unable to earn. However. She told Dennis that Richard didn't help her out financially and it seemed maybe a sore spot for his sibling. Dennis seems to really over-explain himself. He avoids silence. The investigator says hardly anything, but it seems that Dennis needs to fill that space. When questioned who he may feel could be responsible, he implies that the Dragon Lady, or Diane, may have done it. Or possibly a crack addict looking for money. He struggles to come up with suggestions and makes a point to clearly state that he doesn't really know Diane. But because she was the mistress, she may have had a motive, but he had no other reason to suspect her. Dennis claims he arrived and parked in the place where his dad parks and then went up to the top of the stairs, realized he didn't have something he wanted to bring, so he went back to his car and drove out. Then he was thinking of going home, maybe back to the office, but he didn't have his key card to his office, and then he figured just forget it. He parked on the street and went up to the office around 5.30. Richard's assistant left at 5.45. He didn't see anyone else when he left. He said his father was at his desk, and he left at 6.30. This is where it gets kind of crazy. He claims he went to his car, thought about going to the pharmacy, decided against it, And just got in his car and left. He went to the store at the place where his kids go kayaking, around 6.45. And this comes off as odd, because he claims to know that his kids were at their mom's, but he still wanted to just check in and see if they were at the wharf. This is after receiving a call from his wife, asking where he was because she wasn't feeling well. This little getting to his car, reparking, going in, deciding not to go in... And then leaving, but not clear about which door he leaves from, then sort of going back and forth to the pharmacy, is crazy. He later says upon leaving he might have gone into the gravel lot and turned around. Yes, he was sure after a while. He didn't take the first turn or the second street. He was going the wrong way. He knew that. Moments before, he said he had took the regular route, the obvious one, claiming that would be the logical route. He's questioned on this point. Yes, that's the assumed route, but which one did you take? He struggles here. Then he gets called on remembering he went too far up one street and pulling into the parking lot. He's really struggling. He claims, I didn't realize that my route planning was so significant. He's questioned on going the wrong way up a one-way street, and he keeps saying, I believe, to avoid being locked in. When asked if anything else happened, Begins playing dumb to the fact that he's being accused. He knows, and he just doesn't get real. He continues on with, I believe, and etc., etc. He's talking in terms of thinking back, like a week. When really, in fact, he's trying to recall a very recent memory, the day before. It makes you question, does Dennis believe he can talk himself out of this? Talk himself out of confirmed information obtained by investigators? Only a fool or an honest man would try to.
0: I've been just thinking, well, I'm not going to go. Mm-hmm. You know, and then just, no, no, I'll go. I've got enough here, because what he wanted was the wheel. So you went up the first time and spoke to your dad? Nope. Oh, you did Nope. Got to the top of the stairs, didn't have my stuff, mm-hmm. so I left. Okay. Yeah. Drove back to Brunswick Square? Mm, I don't think I got all the way there. I think I just went to... You know the bottom of Prince, you know uh prince william and king mm-hmm. and then went up king and back in Canterbury. so you didn't even go back to work no okay um okay so then when you came back the second time what time was that well i don't know exactly but i know that Maureen was there for about 10 minutes so i'm guessing well i think it was around five thirty. then yeah, you get there the second time um, why did, why did you take your car back around instead of walking? Because I wasn't sure where I was going to be going back. Okay. I was just probably going to leave. Okay. And, uh, and then she said, no, no, I got what I wanted here. So I went back and, uh, and I went in and Maureen was there five or 10 minutes. Uh, just going to be- go back. because I. The first time when we were when we were speaking, you, you, I thought you'd mentioned that you went back to the office, but the the yeah. printing plus yeah. Kind of area. Yeah. So I went out and I walked up toward Princess Street and realized that that's not Wires Park because I was there earlier, and then went back and I was going to go to the drugstore in Brunswick Square, and then I just went out so when you came out you went left when i came out I went left because i thought my mm-hmm. car was and then i went right and then i was got my car on left. but you say you were going to go to the drugstore did you actually get going i that don't way? think so no i might did you start that way and then say well no i remember crossing the street like i remember being on one side of the street and then crossing to the so other. like on the east side and then the west side of Canterbury? Well, the, the side closest to the harbor being the west side, yeah, and then the east side. And then say, forget that. So, you actually got back to your car on the west side of the street and then crossed and then say, I'm, I'm just going to go home. Okay, you're getting me confused on the side. I, was, I think I was on the west side mm-hmm. near Princess Street. And then I remember. Going across, I don't know if there was a bunch of people in the way, I can't remember. And then just getting in my car and leaving. Okay, and, and again, when you left, what's the approximate travel time for you to get home? Usually takes about 20 minutes. 20 minutes. And then you went straight home? No, I stopped and ran for it at the wharf. Okay, uh, and that was at 6 inch, you say? I guess it would be 6.45. Take about fifteen minutes to get there. Okay. Yeah. And what? And what did you do? Yeah. Well, my I was hoping my kids were there. Okay. But are they usually there? That's well, they're because of summer. They do kayaking where the rowing club is, mm-hmm. and so after the kayaking, they can because it's lifeguarded down there. They can go just walk along on the other side of the wharf where mm-hmm. there's a swimming place. Mm-hmm. And I just hope because it was such a great day yesterday that they were. You know, hang out there, but they weren't so. Uh did you tell Lisa you were going there before you were coming home? Did she ask you? Like, she... hey, where where have you been? Oh yeah, she was pissed off that I was wasn't home right away. Okay. Did you yeah. tell her I'd look at Dr. Dad, I stopped at the wharf for the kids? I just said I was at my dad's office. I didn't say I stopped at the wharf. Okay. Yeah. Um when I got home she was she was mad. <laughs> were the kids there? I don't? No, no. They're at their mom's. Yeah, So it was her son was there and her his her son's girlfriend. Did and you know they're at their mom's? Did I know my kids were at their yeah. mom's? Oh, yeah. But you went to the Warp to see if they were there? Yes. Okay. I knew that th- 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 they're week with their mom. Okay. Yeah. So, but they do these activities during the day. Mm-hmm. So, so when I... St- I didn't know where they were. Right. I just knew they were either at their mom's house or at I the see. wharf or somewhere in the I middle. See. I see. Yeah. Gotcha. yeah. Okay. And when you, when you first came home, uh, was Lisa there waiting for you? She was in the sunroom. Okay. But I mean, I went upstairs and got changed and, uh, then I think I went outside looking for her in the garden and she called me like, where the hell are you? I've been waiting for you. Yeah. And, uh, then she was in the sunroom all wrapped up cold and, mm-hmm. yeah. um, just kind of it's, things are curious to me but you know i know if it's me i'm coming home my wife's mad i'm going to go right to her and say hey i'm home just going upstairs is there any reason why you switched the the sequence of that and didn't say hey i'm home to her first and then went up and well know? i did i went around the house and i walked in through the living room mm-hmm. and our house is quite an open concept so when you walk in you can actually see every single room mm-hmm. and so i looked around saw every room, and. Went upstairs, assuming she was upstairs, oh, okay. and she wasn't. And so I got changed, and then okay, the, okay well, assuming she's not in the house, I went out to the vegetable garden, uh, and see. she wasn't there. Yeah. So then I go and go humming back in the house, and she's like, "Where the hell are you?" Mm, okay, and that's why I have to clarify because in my mind I have to get everything straight. And sometimes I go, "Okay, why?" Well, yeah, you know. Yeah. So. Oh, and she was she was quite angry. Yeah. yeah.
1: Since Rothesay is a community about 15 minutes away from uptown St. John, where Dennis and Dick Olin both had offices, the question is obvious. Could Dennis Olin have had time to commit such a vile crime, let alone the psychological wherewithal, as to be so nonchalant so quickly afterwards, a little more than an hour after he's alleged to have slain his father in what the prosecution has called a rage-killing of unspeakable violence, Dennis Olin was captured in security video, shopping at a boutique grocery near his Rothesay home, wearing shorts and a polo shirt, and looking fresh as a daisy. And yet, before the murder occurred, Dennis claimed that he went upstairs to his father's office, and then returned to his vehicle, moved it out of the parking, beside his father's vehicle, and parked on the street before entering for a final time. He was ground almost to sand about his movements after he left the appointment with his father by investigators. Even lied to and told that there were cameras on the building, and only by trial did he disclose that he had actually entered the building three times before the murder. Because the cameras were a lie, he also didn't necessarily leave out the front door onto the street. He may have exited by another door that led to the back alley. What is verifiable is that his silver VW Golf was captured on cameras going past Richard's office three times in seven minutes before he entered. He drove the wrong way up a one-way street before he finally entered the building. Considering his office is very near Richard's office, it's suspect that he didn't just walk. Even after he first entered Richard's building and realized that he may be missing some documents... There was no logical reason to go to his car and move it, and park on the street. His claims that he was debating just going home or to the pharmacy are odd. For a third time to go back? Either Dennis is a very scattered person, which is entirely possible, or his story is just fabricated, full stop. Once Dennis is considered a suspect rather than a person of interest, he signs a Charter of Rights caution, He's warned of making incriminating statements and cautioned that it is his right to call a lawyer if he wishes. That's an opportunity that he takes. However, he's never informed that he is free to leave. He hasn't been charged with any crime at this time. His lawyer tells him not to say anything, but he doesn't tell Dennis to leave if he's not charged. This may be on the account that Bill Teed is not a criminal lawyer. He is, however, known to Dennis, and Dennis trusts him and takes his advice. Once the interview resumes, he's clear that he's been advised not to say anything, and the interrogation just begins to fall apart there. He is not talking. The investigator tells him it's not like in the U.S. we can continue to question you. This is true, but you also don't have to stay. And when they change detectives, The next one, Keith Copeland, who has much more experience, takes on a much tougher conversation. Keith also begins to use a controversial but widely used approach called the read method. Although this method is forceful and accusatory, it's also commonly rife with manipulation. Sometimes involving untrue suggestions, such as implying that if the interviewer believes you're a good person, You may have a lighter punishment or that it's to your benefit in some way to confess to the detectives without a lawyer because you will appear more remorseful and as a result your sentencing may be favored this strategy it's designed more towards gaining a confession than it is getting to the truth of the matter dennis at one point actually tells keith copeland that he's sneaky when he's told that Copeland happened to be at the wharf the day that Dennis went there after seeing his father for the last time. The inference being that he didn't go there to see his children at all. He was there to dispose of his victim's cell phone, and Copeland is implying he saw it happen. However, beyond that Dennis says almost nothing, he is not talking, and he's not reacting to the strong accusations that are thrown at him. The big problem here... Is that detectives have completely divulged everything they have and he knows he's going to be the likely number one suspect but he's going home he's not charged warrants need to be approved to do any searches of his home and vehicle so he has a lot of time to prepare for what he knows is coming if indeed he was responsible he was given something the police should never have left for him the leverage of time It would have certainly been more fruitful to interview him and get any conflicting information that he had on paper and bring him in as the warrants were executed. The search would have been more of a surprise if Dennis felt that he may or may not be on the radar. If Dennis made a mistake not calling a lawyer that specializes in criminal cases during his interrogation, he made up for it by having Alan Gold brought in from Toronto to be his lead attorney along with one of New Brunswick's top defense lawyers, Gary Miller, to take care of him. Millions of dollars were spent in his defense on lawyers alone, and funds were certainly provided by the family, as they gave their full support to Dennis from the beginning of this horrific ordeal. It was reported that at least one private investigator was employed by the family to search for information regarding Richard Olin's murder, and he would need them because shortly after the murder, Dennis Olin was let go from his financial advisor position with CIBC Banking. In the fall of 2011, Constable Rick Russell retired and was replaced by a new lead investigator named Davidson. He was quite new and had much less experience with criminal investigations, and this would help the defense when finally getting into trial. To finally arrive at a trial, however, was a long road Sending in and receiving back exhibits for testing was a delaying movement. Each request had to be approved in Ottawa, and only a certain amount of items could be sent at one time. Once those were completed, another set of items could be requested for testing. It's of small note here that in March of 2013, Diana Sadlasic, who had relocated to Victoria, B.C., made a small comment about breaking away on her Facebook page then she remained silent on the olin murder the lengthy trial which began september 2015 heard from nearly 50 witnesses and revealed a case built on what walsh called largely circumstantial evidence the court excluded a number of items from evidence due to police improprieties including dishonest applications for search warrants and unlawful search and seizure Richard's secretary had found him in a puddle of blood with 45 wounds from a hammer-like weapon. Dennis was the last person seen with Richard at his office the evening of his death and was suspected to have lashed out at his father for hoarding a fortune, betraying his mother, and by keeping a mistress, and for mistreating Dennis as a child. The defense pointed to a video that showed Dennis Olin and his wife shopping later in the evening of July 26, 2011 when people working below Richard Olin's office say they believe they heard sounds of the murder. During the trial, the Crown focused on possible issues of motive, including Dennis Olin's financial difficulties and knowledge that his father was having an affair. But in his own testimony, Olin downplayed his finances as a recurring issue in the life of a financial advisor and said he had not discussed his finances or the affair with his father. At the initial hearing, LeBlanc told the Crown that they had failed to establish a reason for Dennis Olin to kill his father, as Connie, Richard's wife, received the $37 million inheritance, not Dennis. He also said the Crown had no evidence for showing that Dennis asked for money or that being denied money would cause Dennis to be violent against his father. In the hours before the attack, Dennis had seemed flustered Camera footage showed that he went to and from his father's office three times that evening and crossed and recrossed the one way street out front before driving up the wrong way. The Crown had binders full of witnesses to testify that they had seen Dennis at the wharf that afternoon, where Dennis said he had picked up beer bottles but didn't remember what he did with them. He had been carrying a cloth bag. Dennis said that people called it his man purse the same one that he had later brought to his father's office. Clues pointing to the motivation for murder showed that after losing money through divorce and chronic overspending, Dennis had taken a collateral mortgage, asked for early paychecks from his job, and borrowed $538,000 from his father. After Richard's death, Dennis's debt to his father was erased. He also inherited $150,000 and became the co-director of two of his father's companies and president of one. Police found three drops of Richard's blood on the sports jacket that Dennis had worn that evening, which he had dry cleaned the next day. The key piece of evidence for the crown was the brown jacket worn by Dennis Olin. The DNA matched the profile of Richard Oland. However, none of the expert witnesses could say how long the blood had been on the jacket or how it got there. Alan Gold, one of the four well known defense lawyers, pointed to the disturbing mystery of the case. The spots of blood could have been months or years old at the time of Richard's death, and were so subtle that the dry cleaner hadn't noticed them. With the crime scene crusted with 360 degree blood spatter, how could Dennis's jacket and other clothes have stayed so clean? Police had found no evidence of someone washing off blood in the office bathroom. So why was there no blood in Dennis's car or on his man purse? Adamson, Richard's assistant, said that Olin was wearing the jacket when he arrived that day. She remembered, she said, because it was sweltering out, and she thought to herself, it was a hot day and he was wearing something brown, a jacket on. Good grief. Curiously, when Dennis Olin was interviewed by police, He told them he'd been wearing a navy blazer that day. Adamson also testified that Dick Olin's wife, Connie, had asked her to send her home with Dennis that day, an old logbook from a camp that had deep family connections. And before leaving the office, Adamson said she had handed it over to Dick to give to his son when he came by, the son being apparently the more reliable courier. The last she saw of the logbook, it was on the table by Dick's desk. That very same part of the table in crime scene pictures is dotted with blood. While there are other explanations, surely one is that it left the office, perhaps with Dennis Oland, before the murder. A scuba diving search around the wharf and multiple searches of Dennis' house had revealed no murder weapon. And how could Dennis have pummeled his father around the time he'd been seen in a store buying milk and at home rounding up his free-range hens? robert mcfadden and maureen adamson testified that richard did not leave the office between arriving in the morning and maureen leaving at 5:45, and that richard was adamant alcohol not be kept in the office toxology reports from the medical examiner indicate that richard had had some alcohol in his blood the defense spoke to the jury for three and a half hours in closing arguments spoon feeding them reasonable doubt crown prosecutor john hennefer said that Dennis may have had a financial motive to murder his father and that Dennis may have asked his father for more money but was denied by Richard, triggering a murderous rage. The Crown said Richard Olin gave his financially troubled son a $500,000 loan that he was to make interest-only payments on of $1,667 per month so he could pay for his divorce and still keep the home and property that had been in the family for decades. The last payment before Richard Olin had been murdered bounced. In court, Olin was asked whether, at his meeting with his father on July 6th, there was any conversation about finances, a bounced check, or Diana Sedlacek, The woman Richard Olin was having an extramarital affair with. No, Olin replied. Did you ever have a conversation about Diana Sedlacek? No, Olin said. On the stand, Diana said she'd had a romantic relationship with Richard for most of the eight years that she'd known him before his death. They would meet about three times a week in St. John and had seen each other many times outside the city, she told the jury. Her husband only became aware of the affair when police visited him following Olin's death and also when he was shown a newspaper article detailing their relationship. On July 6th, Selassik said she woke up and got ready, sent a text to Olin to say good morning, and then she went to the gym. Before she joined the class, she texted Olin to ask if he had any information on a trip that they were planning to Portland, Maine. Olin returned her call during her spin class, but the phone was on silent, and she couldn't answer it. She replied by text after the class, and he texted her back the possible times for the trip. Sedlasic said she sent a number of texts the evening of July 6th in an effort to reach Oland and also called his cell phone. It immediately went to voicemail, she told the court. Sedlasic said she sent a text asking why he had turned his phone off. Answer your damn phone, she texted. I will call your house, Sedlasic said she tried to call Oland on the morning of July 7th, but there was again no answer. She saw Olin's car in his parking spot as she was on her way to have her hair appointment. Then she sent him a text again at 9.37am asking, What the hell's going on with you? After she left her appointment, Sedlasic said she saw police on the front of Olin's office and told a police officer she had an appointment with Olin. She was told no one was allowed inside. She was then said to have called Richard's home where Connie answered. Connie was unaware of the police presence at Richard's office, and she basically just told Diane off. She was aware of the affair, but was in no way supportive of it. In fact, she was nicknamed the Dragon Lady, according to Dennis in his interview with police, and he said that he had heard from some of Richard's friends that she was a bitch. Diana sent her final text on July 6, 2011, at 11.12 p.m., and told Olin it was pathetic, he wasn't replying. When the courts looked into the reputation of Richard Olin, they found out that when one of his former companies, Brookville Transport, declared bankruptcy, he never repaid the money he owed the mechanics. He poached clients from smaller trucking companies. He verbally abused his wife and four children, including Dennis, but remained devoted to his beloved sailboat. When Richard donated money, he attached all sorts of strings to it. He had helped organize and sponsor the 1985 Canada Games in St. John, as well as build an entire Catholic church in Rothesay, the town just outside of St. John, where Olin's estate is set. But as the Rothsay mayor, William Bishop, explained, came in about two or three times a year and made sure I knew how the town should be run. He's one of those people who gets right in your face and makes sure you're listening. Because Richard wanted a bird-releasing spectacle at the opening ceremony of the games, Bishop had to keep a dove in his house for a month beforehand. He said, It drove me crazy, saying, Coo, coo, coo! Elsewhere, Richard was notoriously stingy. He cut off funding for the Rothsay Pony Club, which his father had run at the family estate to teach people to ride horseback. Buskers in the St. John City Market complained that Richard never tipped. Richard sent messages to Diane that included details on his dry scalp condition, which lawyers argued could have caused the bloodstains on Dennis's jacket during an innocent embrace. Perhaps most notably, the family chose not to disclose the location of Richard's grave. He was not buried in the cemetery plot with his ancestors, even though there's space. Mayor Bishop described the man's funeral, saying, I don't know how to put this, the church was packed, but there wasn't a tear shed, People weren't disturbed emotionally. There was a lack of evidence concerning a financial or emotional motive. A computer forensic expert hired by the family had found no antagonistic emails or other messages between Dennis and his father, even after mining an electronic history the size of the Library of Congress ten times over. That the St. John police were controversially and almost comically sloppy sleuths helped explain the lack of evidence. While working on the crime scene, officers used the bathroom for two days before it could be tested for blood or fingerprints, and they couldn't always remember what they had touched around the office with bloodied gloves. The blood spatter expert didn't arrive from Halifax until four days after the murder, by which time the body had been removed and splatter had dried and flaked. Officers touched the back door before testing it for fingerprints, and they didn't interview some witnesses for 18 months. They didn't photograph the back alleyway until three years after the crime. The brown jacket was handled by an investigator without gloves and kept in a bag for up to four months before being submitted for genetic testing on the small blood drops. It was also submitted that substandard handling of evidence by forensic analysts was occurring. The St. John Police Department earned such little respect from Richard's co-worker Robert McFadden that he refused to give a voluntary DNA sample, leading the police to seize a straw from his glass at Eastside Mario's. After a two-year investigation involving multiple house and underwater searches, police found no weapon. The New Brunswick Police Commission is investigating the investigation. As Gold put it, this isn't the police's finest hour. Never have the police looked so long to find so little. Oddly, on November 9th, Dennis changed his profile picture on his Facebook account to a picture of Harrison Ford from the movie, The Fugitive, a movie about a man wrongly accused of murdering his wife. On November 10th, Dennis was arrested as he was washing his vehicle, and he was said to have been very emotional. November 12th, Dennis was read his charge, second-degree murder. He was released on $50,000 bail nine days later. Dennis was supported by his family members. None spoke to reporters. However, the family did release a statement later that week expressing support for Dennis. They claimed they were certain of his innocence and they called on the St. John Police Force to find the true suspect. The preliminary inquiry began May 12, 2014, and it continued through to December 12. Once the preliminary inquiry ended, Dennis was seen celebrating at a Bob Seeger concert with his friends. Dennis and his friends were captured by fellow concert goers dancing and standing on their seats. Judge LeBlanc would make his ruling to move forward to the trial later, and jury selection would take place in that very venue. The trial was closely watched and reported on extensively. Most likely the increased coverage over the big trials in the past was the introduction of live tweeting and other social media. New Brunswick only permitted these communications since 2012. The case was the introduction of the largest jury in New Brunswick history. It was decided to call for 5,000 jurors. Jurors are selected from a voters list in random. And on September 8th, 2015, St. John's Harbor Station, usually host to hockey games and concerts, became the jury selection avenue. The jury was decided on September 16th of 2015, consisting of nine men and seven women. Two were spares. As the trial was expected to be lengthy, the possibility of illness and family emergencies or any other serious matters was considered quite likely. September 16th of 2015, the trial commenced. Dennis Oland attended court as a free man. He also continued on with his social life around court appearances. The Crown Attorney Paul Van began the opening address He was straightforward as he recounted the history of Olin's high expectations of his family and a tight fist on money. He spent almost recklessly on himself, planning on buying a multi-million dollar sailboat, traveling with his mistress, and doing expensive redecorating on his home. All while his wife was allotted a meager $2,000 a month allowance, if she had receipts to submit. He covered some key areas they would be presenting, such as no evidence of break and enter at the crime scene and Dennis's disapproval of his father's affair, as well as a history of bad blood between them. The Crown would prove that Dennis was the last one to see Richard alive and would uncover his dim financial situation, which may serve as a motive. Upon investigation, Dennis appeared to be in heavy debt He had recently bounced a check to his father to cover interest on a loan involved in his divorce, and he had less than $300 in his account the day of the murder, which became overdraft by $600 the following day, more than $30,000 in credit card debt, $164,000 owed on a line of credit, and he was in arrears to his ex-wife for $4,300 for alimony payments, and at the time of the murder, his spouse was nearly $120,000 in debt and was unemployed. Their claim was going to be that Dennis, in desperation, was asking his father for money and was declined, bringing on a rage that ended in the death of his father. Witnesses began to be brought up for examination, beginning with Maureen Adamson, Richard's assistant, She would be on the stand for almost three days. She was a key witness for the prosecutors because she had worked with Richard for over 30 years and was one of the last people to see him alive and was the one to discover Richard the morning after the murder. She also worked with Dennis Oland and knew him well. She knew about Richard's extramarital affair, even having booked trips for them. Under questioning, she revealed that Dennis had arrived unannounced but Richard seemed delighted to see him. She sensed no tension. She gave Dennis a camp log and some CDs to give his mother to be passed on to their owner, and she departed at 5.45 to meet her husband who was waiting in his car outside the front door to drive her home. Next, she accounted for the morning of the discovery of Richard's body. She arrived at 9 a.m. with coffee and some documents. To her surprise, the second door wasn't fully closed. The inner door was closed, but she can't recall if it was locked because she put her key in by force of habit. She encountered a foul odor and saw Richard's legs extending out from the entrance to his office. Immediately, she went downstairs in a panic, and she retrieved Preston Chaison, who was downstairs in the Printing Plus offices, and then notified police. She also detailed on the stand that her boss didn't allow alcohol in the office and had not left at all during the day. The next witness of note was on October 1st. Constable Davidson, the lead investigator, recalled entering the scene and did not recall which day he entered through the rear door in Richard's office, but he was certain it was locked. He did, however, admit that he didn't wear gloves. At afternoon, Sergeant Mark Smith was called upon He represented a forensic identification section. He would be on the witness stand for many days and he'd noticed the rear door in Richard's office, but only after aiding the removal of Richard's body. He determined it was contaminated evidence, so he did not test the door for any forensic information. He also revealed again that by the time he processed the washroom on Richard's floor, it had been used by police officers. This was a breach of protocol damaged the reputation of the entire department he also searched Dennis's vehicle and its contents as well as the red bag that Dennis carried in and out with him the day of the murder there was nothing of value forensically in the car or the bag he was asked if someone had been bludgeoned that severely wouldn't the killer have cast off blood all over them trace evidence should have been easily tracked no He agreed it would be expected, but qualified his answer. Olin shed tears when asked if he missed his father. Dennis was on the stand for over four hours, but his attorney had sidestepped asking him about his financial status. Upon cross examination, the prosecution was less aggressive than many assumed that they would be. Although he was intensely questioned about his finances, Generally, the approach was quite soft by Venwa, and Dennis was quite nonchalant about his financial situation in July 2011. He was also queried extensively on why he had changed his story so many times about the entrance to Richard's office. Interestingly, Dennis claimed the back door in Richard's office was indeed closed when he visited. He denied having any role in taking his clothes to the dry cleaners the day after the murder. His wife had decided he would need the items to wear at all of the events that would be forthcoming in the days after the murder. Court reconvened on December 3rd and Miller arose and indicated that he would not be calling any more witnesses or evidence. Court watchers were reacting noticeably because they'd expected Olin family members or some friends to be called upon to establish Dennis's character or even to verify his behavior before the murder. On December 14th, the jury returned to court to hear closing arguments for the Dennis Olin case. Alan Gould began by telling the jury that St. John residents were the politest people he'd ever encountered. He went on to tell the jurors that the Crown's case was an especially circumstantial case which placed a heavy burden on them to produce beyond reasonable doubt. He claimed, never have so many searched so long to find so little. He also highlighted the fact that his client wouldn't benefit from the death of Richard Owen as he had willed his entire portfolio to his wife. Only after her passing would the siblings be entrusted with his hefty trust. He also highlighted the insufficiencies within the police department's investigation, lack of evidence about how the attack unfolded, and the fact that Dennis arrived at his father's office while Maureen was still there. As well as the testimony that Adamson had heard a loud disturbance upstairs after Dennis had clearly left his father's office. The only thing that made Dennis a suspect was his errors in some questioning regarding small details about his timeline and the day of the murder. However, of note, he was questioned shortly after finding out his father had been brutally murdered and had attempted to be as open as possible in answering any questions that he could. Only after he was told he was suspected of the crime did he refuse to cooperate, and that was on the good advice of counsel. Gould pointed out that there was no trace evidence on Dennis or the victim. Dennis's car, his phone, or the bag he brought with him. As well as the logbook he took with him, which revealed no blood spatter, which was strong evidence that he left before the murder took place. He also pointed to the relaxed and normal behavior Dennis demonstrated after the attack, which was believed to take place. Shopping with his family and taking care of the garden with his wife, no one detected any unusual behavior from this apparent cold-blooded murder so soon after his, quote-unquote, killing rage. In the Crown's closing address, Venwa highlighted the blood detected on the brown jacket, the attempt to have it cleaned by bringing it to the dry cleaners. Even though the dry cleaner clearly stated that there didn't appear to be any obvious blood stains on the Hugo Boss suit coat when it was brought in. He also highlighted Dennis's financial dire straits combined with the strained relationship that he had with his father. He asked the jury to look and review the whole of the evidence, stating that it was obvious that Dennis had approached his father for financial help, and with the grudge of mistreatment over the years and resentment over his father's chintzy money habits with the entire family, combined with his adulterous behavior, that would have been harshly judged by the son of a millionaire. It was clear mode of an opportunity. He noted Dennis's hesitant moves before entering his father's office as odd. The reason he walked to his vehicle in the wrong direction when he left was that he was presumably disturbed and distraught. His father had just rebuffed his request for help and possibly in a brazen manner or possibly just because he had murdered his father. He also pointed out Dennis's wife had told him that she wasn't feeling well, and he was already quite late, but he still detoured to the wharf on the off chance that his children were there. He had no real indication that they would be there, it was just the off chance. And now, the victim's phone and the murder weapon were missing. He was seen carrying the red bag that he brought into his father's office, and he was seen walking to the end of the wharf with that bag the same place Richard's phone had last pinged. Benoit mocked the idea of a third-party killer, stating the murder was personal considering the overkill, and other than the mistress or her husband, whom had been cleared absolutely, the so-called cheese stands alone. My words, but that's basically it. Benoit stated the inescapable conclusion was that Dennis murdered his father. Judge Walsh began his closing arguments to the jury on Tuesday, December 15th. He reminded the jury of its duties and special rules relating to the specific case. Walsh reminded the jury to base its decision on the evidence presented, and not by the media or sympathy prejudice or even fear. Did the Crown prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt? He reminded them that there was no direct evidence on the impact of dry cleaning the bloodstains. He also stressed there was no determination on what the murder weapon was. Although some speculated it was a drywall hammer, there was no final expert evidence to confirm what weapon was used. A key area was to decide if the DNA on the jacket was from blood spatter or saliva or skin cells. He cautioned the jury against relying too much on cell tower propagations or maps produced by the experts, and, as required by law, he noted possible examples of inadequate police investigations. He was specifically speaking of securing the crime scene immediately and the rear exit door. He also discussed inconsistencies in Dennis Olin's testimony versus his initial conversations with detectives. If they leave you with reasonable doubt of his guilt, then you're required to make your decision on the totality of the evidence. He also made special instructions regarding Shaw's testimony on the timing of the noises from the second floor. If that testimony was reasonable in doubt, then they must acquit the defendant. The jury was released to decide, and it was composed of four women and eight men at that point. After just two days deliberating, the jury was decided. The audience, mostly the Olens, sat back down and stayed rigid, as if posing for the sketch artist. Guilty. Ninety-four days after the start of the trial, on September morning at 11.10, the judge announced the verdict. Dennis wept and cried, "'Oh, no!' and, "'Oh, my God, my children!' while Connie curled over the pew, and Dennis's sister bent over and cried. Lisa turned to the jurors and said, How could you do this? A sentencing hearing was set for February 11th, and police took Dennis into custody immediately. The maximum sentence for second-degree murder is 25 years without chance of parole. All 12 jurors recommended giving no chance of parole for at least 10 We are shocked and saddened, said Connie in a statement. Our faith in Dennis's innocence has never wavered. Patrick stated the same. All Olin members are certain Dennis had nothing to do with the death of his father. Olin's lawyers filed notice of appeal on January 20th, 2016, and that same day they filed notice that Dennis should be released on bail pending the appeal. According to pre-sentence reports, both Dennis's wife and mother gave him a positive assessment and didn't report any anger issues. Constance, his mother, lightly referred to the stress that was caused in the family due to Richard's very difficult and controlling personality. A statement from Olin's uncle Derek also maintained his innocence. He said, We continue to believe our nephew and cousin Dennis is innocent, and we will support him and his family members through the course of whatever legal actions will unfold. Dennis's sister did not submit a letter supporting her brother, although 73 others did file glowing letters to the court, and it was noted by many people in the community. However, of the 73 character letters that were filed with the court, up to 10 of them were excluded as they made inappropriate references to the jury's findings. Holes in the police investigation, and some outright questioned the verdict. A number of them alluded to a wrongful conviction. Judge Walsh was not pleased, stating it was upsetting to him as a judge that people would do that. He reminded the court the trial was not a popularity contest. One glaring letter did, however, slip through the cracks, and it reminded the judge that the victim was disliked or even despised by many people. Judge Walsh explained his sentence would be guided by the character of the convicted person, also by the need to maintain public confidence in the justice system. There are no prior criminal records and no evidence of underlying mental illness here. Dennis was a well-educated professional and a family man who held his job for over a decade. His lack of remorse was a neutral factor in the case. He had glowing character references and he had no worries about Dennis Olin's rehabilitation post-sentence. He reviewed the fact that Dennis was in a desperate financial state, and in a dysfunctional relationship with a very difficult parent, and probably simply lost it in a moment of pent-up rage. He declared Dennis brought the murder weapon to the scene and disposed of it, and the victim's cell phone. He mirrored the decision of the jury and gave Dennis 10 years before parole eligibility. He reminded the court that Richard was slaughtered on the office floor and that he should not be forgotten. Dennis was guilty of second-degree murder, 25 years, and a chance of parole after 10 years as the jury prescribed. After Dennis's sentencing hearing, he spent the night in custody and the next day was transported to the law courts in Fredericton. This was the first time that he would be recorded by media cameras in cuffs and leg shackles. The bail hearing was argued before Justice Mark Richard. One of the criteria for bail was whether there was strong merits to the possible appeal. Dennis was not viewed as a flight risk, but what did concern the court was the perception of the community's public confidence in the administration of justice. No convicted murderer had ever been released on bail in New Brunswick history. February 17th of 2016, the media, Olin family members, and supporters filed into the courts to hear Justice Richards' ruling. Noting that this was a serious offense carried out with great brutality, the judge agreed with the Crown that there were no unique circumstances to justify release. He denied bail. One month after sentencing... Owens' defense team said the verdict should be quashed, saying the judge made multiple errors instructing the jury, and some evidence should not have been admitted. On March 7th of 2016, they attempted to convince the court to release Dennis on bail on appeal to the bail hearing. Three judges heard arguments on the merits of Justice Richards' decision. The Crown repeated the arguments about public confidence, and the sanctity of the jury system. Alan Gold returned to argue that the verdict was unreasonable and that there was an astonishing lack of evidence and the police were guilty of tunnel vision. On April 4th, the court wrote that they were duty-bound to uphold the February 17th decision to deny bail. It was noted, however, that the ground of appeal appears to be very serious. By now, Olin had been in prison for over three months. As Greg Marquis, the author of Truth and Honor, pointed out, there are two levels to understanding the claim of wrongful conviction in Dennis's case. The first is that he's innocent and someone else carried out the crime. The second is that regardless of who committed the offense, there was not enough evidence to convict Dennis on the charge of secondary murder. The outcome raises the possibility that the Olin verdict may have been influenced by reverse class discrimination. The public can have an aversion to privileged defendants. However, if the jury verdict is correct, then there are some very disturbing facts in the Olin case. Dennis killed his father, the grandfather to his children, and the visit to the wharf was to dispose of evidence. Given that there was no recovery of a murder weapon, that would imply he planned the murder by bringing it to his meeting with his father. Next, he lied to his wife and family, who publicly support him without fail. He would have spoken to his wife only minutes after the attack when she called, seemingly normal, and then went shopping with her and spoke to his aunt and sister of the victim for almost a full hour after he had murdered her brother. The truth is, he appeared to live a normal life after the bludgeoning of his father. He was working at a desk just feet from the crime scene as he took over two of his father's businesses. His finances were now stable. He was socializing and went on vacations, even buying himself a new boat. If Dennis is in fact guilty, the oddest revelation is that the victim essentially paid for Dennis's defense while his family stood beside him in support after he murdered his own father. Appeal hearings to the Court of Appeal began on October 16th, 2016. On October 24th, the New Brunswick Court of Appeal threw out Dennis Olin's conviction on the basis that the trial judge had erred in his instructions to the jury on key pieces of the evidential puzzle. Whether Olin had lied to police about what he was wearing the night they believe his multi-millionaire father was killed, it came down to an intentional lie or an honest mistake. The judge instructed the jury to conclude that if they thought his claim to be wearing a blue jacket was a lie, it was enough to bring a conviction of guilt. You don't have to, but you can. The forensic testing was not authorized by the search warrant, defense lawyers wrote in their submission to the Court of Appeal. They also argued that the jacket was tested outside of New Brunswick, which violated the express terms of the judicial orders, requiring it to be detained in the custody of the St. John Police Force in the city of St. John. They argued the testing violated Owens' charter rights against unreasonable search or seizure, and all evidence from it should be excluded. None of the expert witnesses could say how long the blood had been on the brown jacket or how it got there. Others testified that the killer likely would have had considerable blood splatter on his clothes, based on the amount of splatter at the crime scene. No blood evidence was found on any other articles of Olin's clothing, his car, his home, or his cell phone. The jury had enough evidence to reasonably convict Dennis Olin of murder, but it was improperly instructed on what was needed to get there, the New Brunswick Court of Appeal says. The appeal court said that Judge Justice Jack Walsh erred because he told jurors that they could use the lie as evidence of Olin's guilt. Without adding, they would also have to decide that it was concocted based on other evidence. There was a collective gasp in the courtroom by family and friends. They were hugging and crying. Dennis didn't appear to show much emotion. He briefly smiled. This may be construed as an indication that he does not erupt in emotion like other people do. Maybe it is a point to ponder. When considering his calm appearance while being questioned by detectives the day after his father's murder. He had served about 10 months before the New Brunswick Court of Appeal overturned his conviction, and Olin has been free on bail since October 25th of 2016, pending the new trial. When Olin walked out of the courtroom as a free man, he was with his wife, Lisa, and surrounded by family and friends. Now, once more, he's presumed innocent, but the cloud of suspicion still sits over the family as they await another very public trial to determine guilt or innocence. The killing of Richard Olin was so brutal that it clearly was a crime of passion. Yet, where did the murder weapon come from? There were no tools in the office barring a small screwdriver. If Dennis had gone to his father for not only a review of genealogy as he testified, but also to borrow money Why would he bring a weapon? The jury had believed Dennis would have brought it with him and disposed of it later in the wharf. Another possibility is that he discarded it and returned after 10.30pm to retrieve it. There was no evidence admitted confirming his whereabouts after he returned home, but to return again would have been a very risky proposition. Of course, if the murderer was a third person, they would have had a greater range of options. Discussions of another suspect brings a new question. Who else had motive to slaughter Richard Olin? In the words of his daughter, almost anyone. There were some rumors that Richard may have owed an investor a substantial amount of money. Also, Olin was known to have been adulterous in his 60s, so who's to say that he hadn't done it before? There was no evidence at trial that there had been other women but possibly there was a bitter breakup in his past that didn't come to light. The greatest puzzle of all, though, is the blood evidence. The assault was extremely violent, yet no bloody footprints or handprints exited the building, and no evidence of cleanup existed. Dennis's brown jacket had almost undetectable blood spots, which apparently had to be magnified by 500% to be discovered. Further to that, He wore his shoes and pants to the interview with police the next day. If he had worn protective coverings, such as a poncho or raincoat, that would have had to have been disposed of also, implying a greater case for premeditation. Also, there was no trace evidence in his vehicle, or on his phone, or anywhere in his home. That much blood and not one transfer detected anywhere is very odd. The scene implies a crime of passion, but the evidence implies a real dose of premeditation. Also, if Dennis had committed the crime, what possible reason could exist for stealing the phone? There was nothing discovered on the computers or phone forensically implying Dennis, so why would he remove it from the scene? Also, the detection of a small amount of alcohol in Richard's body is odd. Did someone connected through business stop by after Dennis left and offer Richard a drink and then a conflict ensued and the evidence was removed with the murder weapon? Richard's assistant was adamant that he did not leave the office all day and he never kept alcohol on the premises. Possibly Richard had done some harder drinking the night before his murder and the alcohol still remained detectable the next day. Oddly, Dennis left his interview with police knowing clearly he was a suspect in the murder, so possibly that was motivation to have the jacket dry-cleaned. But if he took such measures, why would he keep the tags from the dry-cleaners until a warrant to search his property, which was a predictable outcome, allowed them to be discovered? And finally, how could Dennis have committed this brutal act of violence and then continue on with his day observed by family and camera surveillance, apparently unmoved, actually smiling in some camera captures. Not to mention still wearing the brown jacket. Some things are not adding up. At times, it seems impossible that Dennis could have exacted this nefarious plan. Yet, he was the last one known to see Richard alive. He went to the wharf for no real reason, other than to possibly bump into his children when he knew that his wife was angry and waiting for him to come home. Yet, when he did finally arrive at home, it seems he purposely avoided seeing her to get to the master bedroom and freshen up. Then, when brought in the day of supposedly finding out his father was murdered, he seemed quite pulled together, almost chatty. However, seemingly scattered about his movements of the day before, which he claimed was because he was upset. Does Dennis just not show his emotions outwardly very well? He remained quite composed in court, even under questioning directly. That had to be extremely stressful, but he kept his composure. Because he knew within himself he was innocent, or because he's a cold-blooded killer, that greedily took the money he needed to maintain the lifestyle he wanted and was now rid of his overbearing father, all while maintaining family and community support and his marriage. The new trial will now begin on October 10th at 9.30 a.m. of 2018.
0: Yeah, he and I didn't have that close father-son relationship. I think um, we would do well just by he had this thing that you can't be friends with your son right you know and i get that he Mm -hmm. wasn't friends with his father i don't think i wanted to be friends with him